Uh, well, good morning. I'm Trevor Owen. I'm the pastor of spiritual formation here at the church. Um, Brian, who preaches the majority of the time, is on vacation, so you get me. Yay. Um, we're in the middle of a sermon series on church history. And in case you think you wandered into, you know, 101 class and it's going to be a lecture, I'll try not to do that. But I also majored in this for my master's degree, and I nerd out about it. So, sorry. If it gets boring, start looking like you're falling asleep. I'll throw in a joke or something. Um, but that said, the reason we're doing church history is because it gives us these foundations for what we believe and why. I mean, you literally are sitting here because of the history of the church in Christianity. It, it, we know who God is. We know who Jesus is. We know what faith is because of those who've come before us. And so when we go back and we look at, well, what are these tools or these things that created this faith, that, that empowered it, that gave flesh to it, that gave meaning to it, it helps us put in perspective what we hold to and what we don't. Because we'll, you'll see today as we talk about it, there's this huge tension between our personal faith and the institutional structures that give that meaning or that we buy into or we support um, but to that end, I want to introduce somebody who's probably the most beautiful woman in this place, my wife. Uh, and if she would come up here, Jeanette, we, uh, I, I introduced this last week. So this is a church history timeline. Believe with me here for a sec. Hold on, we'll slow down, slow down. Uh, you got to look back. So this is, keep going, every foot is 100 years. Where she's at is Abraham. This is Jesus. Okay? Now, let all that go because it doesn't matter for this sermon. So Jesus, we talked last week, Jesus to Constantine. Roughly. We're going to pick up here, and we're going to try and do, whoops, we're going to try and do this much today to the Great Schism. Not really. We'll, we'll get to there, but this is the section we're going to talk about here. From that point, we'll then go to Martin Luther, Protestant Reformation, John Wesley, which is kind of the tradition this church finds itself in, to Hillspring to today, to Trevor's life. <laughs> okay, thanks my dear. <laughs> but that should give you an idea of kind of where we're at in this history, right? I mean, it's a lot. And we're gonna try and take, well, roughly 750 years and squish it down into 30 minutes? We'll see. So understand that in the midst of all this, there's a whole lot that is going to get left out. And there's going to be a whole lot of things that are grossly oversimplified. Um, and as somebody who I was talking to before service pointed out, history is written by the winners. So a lot of what we know is one perspective. So keep all that in mind, even though I read five different books on this and Wikipedia, because, you know, it's the fount of all knowledge. 
there's things that I'm going to oversimplify. There's things that are going to be left out. There's things that are going to be skewed because it's just the way it is when we look into our history and into our past. But that said, so we're going to start with Constantine. The guy who came before Constantine was named Diocletian. And about the 50 years, yes, this beautiful man whose head is bust carved in gorgeous marble, Diocletian, um, he, he was on the, th- uh, well, he, he divided up the Roman Empire into two different regions, east and west, and he had what he called Augustuses. He had a, a, a leader in each east and west, and then he had a Caesar underneath the Augustuses. So he was sort of the supreme leader, and then there were like four other vice presidents underneath him. And this system worked really well, and up to about 300 AD or so, Rome was really pretty stable. For about 500 years, things had been going pretty well, pretty smooth, a few little skirmishes here and there with barbarians of the north and so on and so forth, but overall, the empire was doing great. And relatively, there were little pockets here and there, but the Christians were doing pretty good. They were kind of involved in politics a little bit and in the military a little bit. They'd kind of gone from being only pacifist to kind of being involved a little bit reluctantly. But overall, the empire was doing fairly well. And then in 303 AD, because of political pressure for some of the people underneath him and different things, uh, grossly simplified, Diocletian declared that all Christians should pay tribute to the emperor, worship him, and, and declared that Essentially, Christianity was outlawed. Took up a little while. And there broke out in the world the worst systematic oppression of Christians that anybody had seen. And the churches started being burned. People were forced to surrender scriptures or holy writings. They, they were forced to, they were forced out of their homes. They were martyred. They were executed. They were crucified. There's this huge systemic persecution of Christians that goes on from about 303 AD for about eight years to three, well, the 311. In the midst of this persecution, Diocletian gets really sick and he turns over power to the empire to the four people that were underneath him, which promptly breaks into a civil war. (laughs) Because, you know, we all share power real well. (laughs) And so Rome, in the midst of this horrible persecution of the Christians, because everybody hates them at this point, starts to, these rulers start to battle. And Rome starts to kind of go into this huge turmoil between the East and the West. Except I'm going to grossly oversimplify this. There's this guy named Constantine who had a far worse bust maker than Diocletian. (laughs) Constantine was uh, one of, he was the son of one of those people who was also a general. And he was over primarily Gaul, which was northern up near like Germany and then over into Britain. And he had very loyal troops. And he kind of bided his time while the rest of these people were fighting it out. And then in 312 AD, launched a massive assault onto Rome. 
And he crosses over the Alps and descends down and he storms Rome. Now Rome is held by a guy named uh, Maximilian at this point. Am I the right name? I think I said that wrong. Anyway, uh, one of the Maximils, Maximus, Maximilian, anyway. Rome is held by this general. And on the eve of the great battle between them, Constantine has this amazing experience. He's standing outside of Rome with all his armies at noonday, and he looks up into heaven above the sun and sees a cross, a Christian cross. Now, his mother was Christian, so this wasn't entirely former, or foreign to him, but he is definitely not a Christian up to this point. And he sees this cross in the sky, and that night he goes to sleep, and he has a vision or a dream of Jesus coming to him, and he presents a Cairo symbol to him, which is the first two names of Jesus' name, or the first two letters of Jesus' name, Christ's name, the Cairo, and says, in this symbol, conquer. And so Constantine gets up in the morning. He tells all his troops, put the Cairo on your shield. We'll put it on a banner, and we're going to go to war for Rome. Now, Rome was incredibly well defended at this point. Huge walls, lots of stores. I mean, they could have held out against the siege and waited for backup troops. For some reason, Maximilian brings his troops out onto the battlefield to fight Constantine. And Constantine annihilates the entire army in that day. And the guy drowns, fleeing across a bridge. Not Constantine, Maximilian. And overnight, Constantine goes from being this popular general to becoming a Christian to ruling the entire eastern half of the Roman Empire. Now, Think about this from a Christian perspective. You have just had 10 years of absolute horrendous persecution as a Christian. Your friends have been persecuted, your churches have been burned, your holy books have been stolen, people have betrayed you. It's, it's been awful. And all of a sudden, God's man gets on the throne. God, Jesus shows up, gives him this vision. He, he conquers in the name of Christ. And all of a sudden, Christianity goes from being this hated, persecuted, squished people to literally sitting on the throne of Eastern Rome. This is a miracle. This is unbelievably good our guy is there. And true to form, Constantine starts to really support Christianity. And he brings about all kinds of really cool reform. I, you know, I mean, he starts, he stops pagan sacrifices, particularly of infants. That's good. He outlaws the abuse of slaves. He stops execution by crucifixion. He sets the precedent for free expression of religion, not just Christianity, but all of them. Until the Christians come to power later and start killing pagans, but that's a whole other thing. But he gives 
special privilege to Christians and he starts demanding that, that they be given their churches back. I mean, this is a miracle. But I like the way the author, Justo Gonzalez, puts this. He says this, Christianity was forced to face new questions. What would happen when those who call themselves servants of a carpenter and those who, whose great heroes were fisher folk, slaves, and criminals condemned to death by the state suddenly saw themselves surrounded by imperial pomp and power? Would they remain firm in their faith? Or would it be that those who had stood firm before torturers and before beasts would give way to the temptations of an easy life and of social prestige. These were the burning issues the Christian church had to face in the next period of its history. You see, all of a sudden it went from being, man, you were risking your life to be a Christian to it was politically beneficial to be a Christian. I mean, Constantine's at least borderline Christian. He didn't get baptized until the end of his life. If you're optimistic, it's because he wanted to make sure he was forgiven for all the sins he'd done as an emperor and wanted to be baptized at the very end so he couldn't sin before he died. If you're less optimistic about that, it was because he didn't want to totally tick off all the pagans and wasn't 100% sure he was following Jesus, but was using God's power. But all of a sudden, regardless, it becomes popular to be Christian. It becomes this good thing. And you start seeing Christianity rise up and institutions being formed. Christianity went from a movement of the people to forming its own power structures and its own institutions. And it started working with the Roman Empire. You know, there started to be financial benefits for having a church. In fact, you could be tax exempt. <laughs> and if you were in trouble and you needed, you know, to get out of, you know, some debt, you could give land or money to the churches and have the debt forgiven. Interestingly, over the next several centuries, the church became the largest single landholder in Europe. And they started changing the way they did worship. I mean, prior to this, you were like, you know, in underground little house churches, and you wouldn't have somebody standing up here, right? You'd have somebody sitting down here, and you'd be like, hey, Grimelda, sing a song. And you'd be like, oh, you sing a song. And then you're all not singing because we've changed that. You started having really professional pastors and priests. They designed churches and set them up in sort of this form, kind of copying, actually, the uh, courthouses of the day. And somebody up front who spoke. You also had a little gated area where you started putting a choir. You had pews for people to sit in, build big buildings. Stop being this intimate, personal, hey, tell me about Jesus in your life today, to, hey, let me tell you about Jesus for your life today. You're welcome. See, Christianity started to change. And in the midst of this as well, 
they start kind of adapting and adopting some of the pagan practices of the day. I mean, one of the things that Constantine does fairly early on in this is he declares Sunday a day of worship. You don't need to work. Sunday is your day of worship. Christians had been meeting on Sundays, the first day of the week, and so he was affirming this. But interestingly, he also, his personal God was the God of the unconquered sun. And he named Sunday the Sunday. And so there's this sense of like worship, but also sort of this like influence of the paganism. <clears throat> this unconquered son, anybody want to take a wild guess what his birthday was? <laughs> Cinco de Mayo. It's awesome. <laughs> Excuse me, way before that time. Uh, December 25th, the birth of the son. It's actually this day that becomes Christmas, the birth of the Son. Uh, which, historically speaking, Jesus was not born on December 25th, but that's a whole other thing. But you start to see some of these things influencing garlands, candles, incense. They're all from pagan worship. They start appearing in the church. In fact, it's interesting, up until this point in time, when Christians gathered together, nobody kneeled in prayer, particularly on Sundays, because that was the day you celebrated your adoption as a child before God. You came in and you worshiped with hands outstretched, standing up, because you were God's child. You didn't need to kneel before him. You were part of his family. But... You kneeled to the emperor. And you kneeled in tribute to the gods above you. And so now we started kneeling. There's also a whole bunch of stuff into this, and I'm not going to get into it with the veneration of the saints and Mary and crossing yourselves and symbols. It's not an anti-Catholic thing. It's just that's what it was at the time. There starts to be all this compromise in the institution. And big, big change. And here's the question I want us to wrestle with and think about. And it's what historians have argued about for years. Was this change good for Christianity? Did this actually further the cause of Christ? I mean, it certainly was good for it as an institution. It certainly was good for it as far as power structures, and and absolutely God worked through it and used it, and we'll talk about that in a second. But did this further the kingdom of heaven, or did it further the kingdom of the church? You know, so often... We as Christians pray for life to get easier and more comfortable. If I tell people I'm going on a mission trip, almost every single time they say, I'll pray for safety. Almost every single time they pray that I don't get sick. 
or that it goes well, or I travel safe. We have this very human part of us that says we need to make things better, safer, stronger, more powerful, more in control. And I'm sure that's what all the Christians being persecuted were praying for. But sometimes, sometimes the answers to those prayers, sometimes the safety, the comfort, the ease, the influence, the power, the control does far less to actually spread the kingdom of heaven than it does just to make us more comfortable. Not exclusively. But you start to see Christianity wrestle with this power and this structure and this control. And one of the first things that happens within six months of Constantine adopting Christianity and coming on the throne is there's this group of people called the Donatists down in northern Africa. And I'm not going to get into the whole details of it, but there was this group of people that didn't want to uh, listen to the bishop that was appointed over them because the bishop had given sacred scriptures to Diocletian during the persecution and they felt he betrayed them. And so, you know, on pain of being killed, he'd sacrificed or given some of the writings and the scriptures. And so when everything settled out and all of a sudden Christianity became in vogue, they said, well, that guy's a traitor. We don't want him. We're not going to listen to him. Well, Constantine did not want this kind of chaos within the church. And so when actually the Donatists come to him and they say, we want you to appoint a new bishop or you know, resolve this problem. And so Constantine says, well, I, you know, I'm, not, I, I'm still a new Christian. I've only been a Christian like six months. And I'm not listening to anybody anyway because I'm the bishop of the bishops. So he appoints a council to oversee this. And the council decides against the Donatists and said, you guys need to submit to that guy. The Donatists say no. So Constantine says, well, I'm the emperor. Don't screw up what we're doing here. You're all kicked out. Burn your churches down. We're going to give them to somebody else. Just like Jesus would do. But within about six months, Constantine is establishing himself as the head of the church. Now, he's smart enough not to say he's the guy, but he commissions and controls councils that then start solving things, which is what this picture is of. This is the Council of Nicaea. Does anybody know what's famous about that? The Nicene Creed, well, I was going to say, you know, getting rid of the heresy of Arianism, but, you know, the Nicene Creed. It's also the council that established when Easter is. Constantine starts calling together these bishops. There's about 1,800 of them scattered throughout the empire at this point, and he calls the Council of Nicaea, and he says, hey, we need to sort this stuff out. Now, I will say here that this is a political, there's a political benefit to this because you want the whole empire to be on the same page, but it's not just a power grab. 
These are sincere bishops and leaders of the church that have endured persecution and, I mean, held strong to the faith and loved Jesus and had these amazing experiences who are coming together to sort out what is it that we believe and why do we believe it? And so they come together and they gather and they spend like, I mean, it's, it's like a three-month-long council. You think all church meetings go long? <laughs> and they get together and they start literally fleshing out who is Jesus and these creeds. What do we believe and why? And there is this group called the, the Arianists who who have some heretical ideas about Jesus. Jesus isn't actually fully God. Jesus was like adopted by God and put into the role of being savior of the world. And at the end of this council, there's only three, that, three bishops that still say, okay, yeah, we agree with it. And of course they lose their churches and get exiled. But they, they start coming together and saying, what do we believe and why do we believe it? What really matters? And I believe that absolutely God worked in this and through it. I mean, God is a master of taking our, our efforts, our structures, our situations, our things, and using them to bring about his ends and his purposes. I mean, you think God went, well, you used to come into church standing, but now you're kneeling, so now you're all heretics? No, God went, okay, I, I see your heart. Awesome. Hey, you're, you're wrestling with who I am and whatever. Let me work through the structures and the things that are there to bring about this truth. You know, Constantine dies in 337, and by this time he'd consolidated the entire emperor, empire. I'd love to get into that whole story because it's a little fascinating. But he's moved the capital from Rome to Constantinople. Any history buffs want to guess where that is? Istanbul. Isn't there a song about that? I'm not going to sing it. Which actually was a brilliant move from a historical perspective because within about 80 years or so, the Eastern or the, the Western Roman Empire starts to fall apart. And it's starting to get invaded by barbarians and it just turns into this huge mess. Constantinople stands as a beacon and the largest city in Europe for a little over a thousand years. And it becomes the seat of Eastern Christianity, which we'll talk about more in the schism next week. Spoiler alert. But he moves the capital there, and then he, he dies. His sons come to power. There's like this turnover for a whole number of years. And in the midst of this, in kind of the middle of the 300s, there's this guy named Athenaeus who comes on the scene. He's a bishop, very well-spoken, uh, very well-regarded. And he, well, helps canonize the most... well-written, 
longest lasting, best selling book in all time. The Jesus book. This is interestingly, a, uh, I lived in Hawaii for a number of years, and everywhere I live or, or go on a short term mission trip, I try and buy a translation of the scripture in that language. This is written in Hawaiian pidgin. And you may recognize this verse. God went got so plenty love and aloha for the people inside the world that when he sent me, he won an only boy. So did every dad, everybody that trusts get me no get cut off from God, but get the real kind of life that stayed him to the max forever. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I apologize to all my pigeon speaking friends. Uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, right? So in 367, Athenaeus says, you know, we've been using all these scriptures in these different books that are around. I mean, we've had the gospel since the early 100s, you know, finalized for sure, and we've had these writings by Paul, but we've had all these different little things that, that are maybe scripture, maybe not scripture, good ideas, not good ideas. We need to sort this all out. And so they have another council, and at the end of it, he publishes the list of the New Testament scriptures. This is the first time it's officially adopted. It's your Bible. Except it's interestingly, there's also a bunch of people say, well, what about the other books that we've really been using? The Didache tells us all kinds of things about worship. What about the Shepherd of Hermas and all the, the truth and the wisdom in there? What about the wisdom of Solomon? What about the gospel according to Peter? What about, what about, what about? Now, we're Protestants. We threw it out a number of years ago, so you probably don't even think about it, but Books of the day had the Apocrypha, which means the lesser writings. And there's a whole mess of them. I mean, you can, if you buy an Eastern Orthodox Bible or a Catholic Bible, I mean, you'll, you'll see letters like the first book of Esedris or Tobit or Judith, the rest of the chapters of the book of Esther. Never read it. Prayer of Manasseh, First and Second Maccabees. But they say all these writings, we're going to boil down, we're going to say that these 27 books of the New Testament are our canon, are our scripture. Now, here's the question. Did they just, you know, like, popularity vote? Who likes this one? It's in. It's out. No, they actually used a very specific set of circumstances. They said it had to be written by an apostle or come from somebody directly from an apostle's influence. It had to be orthodox. It had to align with the tradition that we've been experiencing. Keep in mind, this is in 367 eight. This is over 300 years after Jesus that we're finally finalizing scripture. It had to be orthodox. It had to be old. If it wasn't written first century or right around there, it's not original. It had to show evidence of divine inspiration. Scripture is God-breathed. 
And people had to be using it all over the place. And here's the thing. Sometimes I think we think as Protestants that like the Bible was just dropped into our lap by God book that is the source of all that we believe and understand and hold to. That was never what it was. In fact, even in 2 Timothy, right, 3, 16 to 17, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, scripture is a representation of God to act as a tool to reform your life. That's not the fourth member of the Trinity. It's authoritative. It's true. It's God-breathed. It's worth standing on and believing in and holding to. It is supported and dedicated by the church for centuries. But it's only as a representation of who God is. And see, they understood that. But the real heart behind Scripture, the thing that really mattered, was the faith and the person, faith in the person of Jesus. And this is the rub of this whole time frame and situation. Is it about the institution, the structures, the traditions? the way you do things, having the influence, making things the way you want them to, or is it about a personal connection with the God of the universe and finding beauty in the tools that he's given us? And I would love to get into it, but over the next 600 years, this is what the, true, the church wrestles with. I mean, Augustine has this personal transformation, uh, this like sense of coming to Christ and, and his heart is changed. And he writes amazing doctrine and establishes this, this personal transformation journey. And then you fast forward about 100 years past that and you have this guy named Pope Leo that starts to consolidate church doctrine and the Roman Empire starts to crumble and fall apart and the churches as the biggest landowner and all this power starts to hold the empire together. It becomes the Holy Roman Empire. But Pope Leo has this amazing authority and actually meets with Attila the Hun outside of Rome. He's, Attila's come all the way from Mongolia across, raping, pillaging, destroying Incidentally, there is more DNA from Attila the Hun than any other human in history. But he meets Attila the Hun, and for some reason, Attila turns back, goes back to Mongolia, and doesn't sack Rome. And this solidifies the authority and the power of the church. When Rome and its empires had crumbled to the point it couldn't defend its people, the church stood in the gap. But it also stood with power and control and authority. Ultimately to the point where we get to next week when we start talking about wars upon wars 
with the Crusades and the Inquisitions and the control that the institution tried to hold on to. So here's what I want to close with. As Christians, it is so easy to get focused on the institution, the morals, the guidelines, the to-dos, the scripture reading, the coming to church, the sitting here, the listening to a really great worship team, to getting told what faith looks like or life looks like, to rely on the institution and miss the personal peace. Do you love Jesus? Are you willing and are you able to lay your life down to follow him? And that becomes harder the more comfortable your life gets. And this is the place we need to wrestle today as much as they wrestled back then. How do we follow Jesus well with what we've been given? And so as the worship team comes up and we close in this song, That's what I want to encourage you to wrestle with personally. As church, as faith about this building and this place and the cool stuff we do, and don't get me wrong, there's amazing, beautiful stuff we do. The Eastgate kids were sending to Bighorn. You guys paid for that, whether you knew it or not. There's beautiful, amazing things that happen through the institution. But ultimately, what really matters is are we following this guy, Jesus? And is he changing our lives? Are you letting him change yours?